You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please help the show out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, I got a special segment of the show coming up in uh, just a few minutes, but let's start today's podcast as we usually do with emails and messages from you, the listeners. So let's get right into it and begin with our friend and patron, Ginger, who writes, thanks for playing the whole song from your soundtrack. It was excellent. I love that you call it a soundtrack, Ginger. I never thought of it that way. Uh, Thank you so much for that. What Ginger is talking about is uh, the intro music that you hear on each of these podcasts. You just heard it fade away there. Uh, It's actually just a small piece of a song I wrote some years back and recorded with a band called Barely Covered. Long story on that that name. Uh, Maybe if you email me, I'll tell you what it is. But for the podcast I released right before Christmas, I kind of let the entire song play out at the end. I actually heard another podcaster do that recently. And um, also because I had a number of people over the years ask me what the song is, wanting to know what it is, where it comes from, all that kind of stuff. Well, there you go. It's a song called Live It All Again, and uh, it is actually not currently available on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere like that. The best I can do is offer you some CDs. If anyone wants one, just drop me an email. We can arrange that, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. I still have a few CDs left. It's uh, been a few years since we recorded that, but uh, anyway, there you go. Thanks, Ginger. Glad you enjoyed it. Another quick message. This comes from Elise on Facebook who says, Dave... I'm so excited about every episode of this season. I'm on the edge of my seat like it's season five again. Keep up the great podcasts. Thank you for all you do. And thank you, Elise. I wanted to make sure I read your message here on the show because I think we get accused here on this podcast of often being too negative, of complaining too much. And I think every once in a while, we kind of all need to admit how much we really do love this show and we love the Oak Island mystery, right? It's easy to sound down on all of it sometimes because that's what you do when you watch shows. You, you point out the things you don't like uh, and you spend more time doing that. It's just natural. Spend more time doing that than pointing out the things that you like. But I think I speak for all of us listening when I say we are thrilled to be able to watch this mystery being investigated in front of our eyes. And despite the challenges we often bellyache about, we really do all love the show and the fellowship, right? Elisa, I feel like your message this week reminded me of that fact, and I wanted to thank you for that and bring it out there to the rest of the listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing in. Now let's get to an email from Warren who writes, Hi there, quick question. This is a new void that they did not expect. Didn't they do seismic testing on this whole area? Wouldn't something like this shown up? Me, not an expert, but was under the impression that this is exactly the kind of thing that seismic would have revealed, unless it's too deep. Loving your show. Keep up the good work, Warren. Warren, I'm going to assume you're talking about the sort of cavern thing they found last week, which they investigate again this week with the sonar. The one last week they put a camera down into at the end of the episode. Now, did they know or at least have an idea they might find this here? Listen, I can't answer that for sure. They're usually pretty guarded with information like that, right? Had it come up with had it come up on seismic scanning or during some other investigation over the years? Listen, probably, but it's impossible to say for sure. But what I can tell you is this. There is a reason that these boreholes that they're drilling here are done go, go all the way down to like the 150-foot level. 
They don't just stop at the target depth they're looking at for the tunnel, right? Recently, more more recently, they're looking at this target of like 108 to 110 feet. And this is what they've been chasing. The reason why they don't stop, you know, only 10 feet beyond that is because they are aware of possible anomalies at depths of 150 feet or more. And some have even suggested that it's, you know, a lot lower than 150 feet. So were they completely shocked by it as the show would lead us to believe no, that wouldn't be possible, if for no other reason than because I wasn't even shocked by it. And what the heck do I know, right? Deep, deep caves or voids in the Money Pit area have been part of the, what's the word, the lore for some time now. At least, uh, certainly since Dan Blankenship's time, no doubt about that. And I believe a lot longer than that as well. So no, they're not at all shocked to find something there. And I think they were equally not shocked to discover it appeared to be perfectly a natural formation from the images on the camera. But we're going to get more of that uh, during the episode review, and that might change my mind a little bit on that. So hang on to that. Great stuff, Warren. Keep them coming. Okay, let me mention a comment during the live Patreon discussion last week from Mark. Kind of a cool comment. Who says, random thoughts for the start of 2023. When the well or shaft runs dry, always return to the ship-shaped anomaly. Regarding Terry Matheson, I can't imagine he stands at that table eight hours a day, five days a week, all summer, cutting open one sleeve after another. Either he films an entire season's worth of scenes over the course of a week or so, or he comes in every like Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 p.m. to perform what is increasingly more ritual than revelation. Tony Sampson brightens every episode in which he appears. He looks like a superhero pushing that boat around. Wouldn't it have been smarter years ago for the producers to have made their bet on the Vikings rather than the Templars? Lots more inexpensive footage from old Viking movies to plug in than to plug in than old Templar movies. Great stuff, Mark. Let me go through these one by one here. Yes, the ship-shaped anomaly, the SS Maddie Blake, as I've come to call it, is starting to wear on the nerves of uh, of many viewers. Uh, truth be told, it is starting to get a little silly. <laughs> but let's face it. Come on, the graphic that they keep showing really does look like a ship lying over on its side. And the ship in the swamp thing is a theory that's been around for decades. It's one of the most fantastic theories. And it's it's a theory that was held by somebody who has been on the show and Fred Nolan, you know, and a, a, an owner of the island who's been part of the lore for the last, you know, half a century. And the graphic that we see there, like I said, is really, really cool looking. So it isn't hard to see why they keep going back to this image year after year, even after they disproved it. And, remind, <laughs> remember, disproved it at some considerable expense, I might add. I mean, they floated a huge drill on a barge out into the swamp, and that couldn't have been easy or cheap. Yet they keep going back to it, and I think it's really just sort of drama that they keep going back to it for. I don't think anybody there really thinks there's a ship there anymore. Because, again, they drilled in there and they found sand, and that was the cause of the anomaly. If I'm not mistaken, it was sand. Now, as far as Terry Matheson is concerned, I think Terry spends uh, you know, a lot more time on the island than you might think or that you're indicating here. But here's how you can figure that out for sure. Start watching what the guys are wearing, <laughs> and you will get a better idea of exactly how much time is in between these boreholes, right? Are they in short sleeves? Are they in sweatshirts? Are they in coats? You know, my guess is um, he's probably there for the, you know, for the better part of the summer, for a matter of weeks. Uh, it's not the entire summer doing this work, um, you know, but a lot of it. Because think about it, the drilling company must have other jobs to do. So they're definitely spending, uh, you know, or what's the word? I'm spreading these, these scenes out to some degree to just sort of fill in the whole 
the holes throughout the entire season. Maybe they do like a couple of weeks in the beginning, a couple of weeks in the middle, and a couple of weeks at the end. That would probably be make a lot of sense. But I would imagine both Terry and this drilling company has other things to do. Um, you know, anyway. And on to Tony Sampson. Uh, folks, Google Tony. He has an incredible backstory that really is not that far off the superhero status, if I'm, if I'm to be honest. So do that for yourself. It's an interesting discovery. And finally, when it comes to why they haven't pushed the Viking narrative more, I hate to say it, but that's probably because there isn't a lot of there there, if you know what I mean. Um, for one thing, the whole concept of something buried like that doesn't really fit well into the history of the Vikings and what we know about their way of life. It doesn't seem like something Vikings would do. Um, and like we've said, the more and more research that's being done on the Vikings' time in Nova Scotia, the less and less likely it all becomes that they were there for any long period of time that would be needed to do this. Um, but you're right. There certainly is plenty of Viking B-roll out there, uh, certainly owned by the History Channel. No doubt about that. Great stuff, my friend, as always. And let's finish up our emails with an email from Tommy who writes, Hi, Dave. Happy New Year to you and all the listeners. Living in the UK, I waited since November to listen to your podcast. Season 10 has only just started here on the platforms and, ch and channels available to me anyway. It's great to have Oak Island back and listen to the relevant podcast after watching the show. I'm trying not to look ahead at the other podcast episodes and see spoilers. I try not to put spoilers in the, the titles and stuff. I mean, the, the titles might have it, but I don't really think there's spoilers there. Anyway, so episode one, which I know you've already done, but another Akshu. I, like you, am excited by the way the season has started and agree the garden shaft seems to have been overlooked. The treasure could have been literally beneath their feet all this time and the women of Oak Island guarding it. My only thought would be, with all the mass digging in the money pit area, how did this survive unscathed if it is something special? Anyway, you'll read this on episode eight, and so may know the answer. Keep up the great work, Tommy. Tommy, we don't know the answer. It's a great question. I mean, at this point, I don't want to give too much away, but at this point, it really is sort of the overarching question of the season. It's the unanswered puzzle that everyone is wondering about, really, why they seemingly woke up one day and decided the garden shaft was a big deal and we needed to uh, put in millions of dollars in it and an entire summer's worth of work, especially in light of the fact that we all know, just show watchers all know, that the Laginas already investigated this shaft years ago and found it, I mean, honestly, so uninteresting that they closed it up and built a memorial on top of it. Was there something that tipped them off that they're not telling us about? At this point, it's impossible to say, but it's a popular theory among fans for sure. Now, could whatever be buried down there remain unscathed? Well, you know, on the hopeful side, that depends on the depth and of, you know, of what's buried and where. You know, if memory serves, the garden shaft is a searcher shaft that was investigated down to something like 80 feet. Um, probably another one of these shafts that went down and we tried to tunnel across to the uh, money pit area from, from a direction they were hoping the flooding would not, would not interrupt them. Um, this is pretty much what every shaft in the money pit was built like. Um, but it was, you know, down to like this 80 feet area. Now, maybe I have that wrong. Maybe it was a little more like a hundred, but it wasn't much lower than that. It's also not within the Dunfield crater limits from what I can see. So sure. I suppose that, um, Below the original construction depth of the garden shaft is as good a spot as any in the money pit area to find something that might truly be 
undisturbed or unscathed, to use your phrase. Let's hope so. We will see, or at least we think we'll see. I don't want to give that one away for you, Tommy, if you're not listening to the rest of the episode now. Uh, great stuff. Thank you, and keep, uh, keep those emails coming. Now, that's all for the emails this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me at digginoakisland at gmail.com. This week, we have a special segment on the podcast before we get into the review here uh, that I was telling you about before. Late last week, I received a fascinating message from marine geologist and friend of the podcast, Gordon Fader. Gordon is the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. He has appeared on the podcast before and has been incredibly helpful on many occasions with getting answers to questions from me and even from you guys, the listeners. Gordon is often, and I think incorrectly, labeled by fans of the show as a skeptic. But like I said, I think that label is really terribly inaccurate if you know anything about Gordon and his theories. I don't want to give away his book because I think you should go out and get it. Uh, but I, I think it is fair to say that Gordon definitely believes in a mystery around Oak Island and a man-made one for that. A mystery that's been, as we like to say, lost to history. He's in search of what he calls the true history of Oak Island. I don't know if he uses that phrase, but it's that same kind of thing. To him, the treasure is the mystery and the history behind it, right? He just doesn't believe that this mystery involves a treasure. He doesn't think it involves the Ark of the Covenant or the Knights Templar or anything like that. Anyway, he's a brilliant guy who closely observes the show and the uh, the dig and the search, and he had the following to say to me. Now, this is a long message covering a lot of topics. I know he posted it in a few other places, but I wanted to give him the voice here to talk about it because these, these are some really interesting topics. There are 21 of them in total, so I'm going to stop as we go and uh, and comment on them. He writes... At the start of this year, 2023, I have identified some important Oak Island attributes and features that require much additional research to bring the study to a factual ending. There are many more, but these are the major ones. They are the result of 50 years of study of the island and remain unsolved. What a nice way to terminate 10 years of TV reality drama research. One, undertake a full study of the important role of sinkholes on the history of the island. They are well-known, but could use additional research on both land and offshore. Study the Two, study the approximately 12 shipwrecks or large mystery features offshore on the seabed. I mapped these and have published their location. They don't need special permission for a photo dive. Okay, let me stop here. Guys, this is true. There are a lot of underwater, what we would call mysteries around Oak Island. Now, these could all amount to nothing, <laughs> you know, nothing that involves the island and its mystery, but they're certainly worth diving on and taking a few photos, especially when you got a, a good diver in Tony Sampson right on the other side of the causeway. Uh, now, Gordon is looking at this and all of these things, I think, or most of these things from the standpoint of investigating his theory. But just think about this one in particular, right? Doesn't it make great television? <laughs> Why not have a look? If nothing else, this would make for some really cool episodes, seeing some really neat stuff underwater. And it certainly is, to me, better television than finding more ox shoes and hammers. Anyway, back to Gordon. Number three, study the clay, gray, not blue. That is thick beneath the island and the swamp for its origin, use, and significance. It is not puddled or deposited by humans and is key to the history. Four, 
study and reassess the many historical artifacts that have been previously found. Chain, brass, iron, leather, wire, pottery, china, glass, dyes, fire pits, and low-carbon steel. Modern techniques can take that much further. Five, assess in detail the sea level history and how it controls the history of the island, formation of the swamp, and some unusual aspects of the coast. Let me stop here again. Can I just say amen, brother? (laughs) We need this information. For so much of what they find, we need to know this information about the sea levels, where the coast was, what we're actually looking at hundreds of years ago in order to determine anything about what they find in the swamp and Smith's Cove and literally anywhere on the beach, including, obviously, the lead cross, right? Folks, when I tell you this information would change your opinion on so much of what they talk about on this show, I'm not exaggerating. Please, for the love of God, do this. Get this information and spend some time on the show looking at it. Okay. Let's go back to Gordon. Six, study the exceptionally deep water depths of many of the near shore features, U-shaped structure, dual box structure, log with pegs, Dan's large furnace structure, and the major subsidence, uh, subsidence trench on the top of the island, and determine if an earthquake event occurred in the early 1700s. The evidence is there. Fascinating stuff, Gordon. Number seven, examine and study why there are four major linear boulder ridges off the southeast coast and how and why they were built. This should include the new triangle, depressions, and other features found and documented by Blankenship. Uh, I'm going to stop again. It is amazing to me how much Dan Blankenship um, documented, took pictures of, and that they haven't really examined over the years. And this is true. I mean, he's got so many things he found. Not all of them could be a fool's errand, but he, he, he's he got so many things that he found that are fascinating things. They haven't really spent a lot of time on it. I don't know if that has to do with Dave not being part of the show anymore. I have no idea. Anyway, let's continue here. Eight, re-examine Frog Island Shoal as there is a shipwreck barge located there and what it was doing. Nine, Examining the evidence for British coastal lookout sites and leading trenches into fortifications. There were at least two. Again, stop. I'll stop here. Like he mentions, um, and like many of the things he mentions here, uh, this is directly related to his theory, right? The idea of British coastal lookouts and fortifications and that kind of stuff. Uh, Read the book, folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about. He continues, 10. Tell us more about the arrowheads found on the Northeast Swamp Site and what was the date. 11. Do a definitive assessment of the rock platform in the Southeast Swamp. Was it young for logging or older by the British for spar prep? 12. Examine the other treasure site on the north of the island where Fred said the treasure was buried. Not the money pit. It is well mapped. 13. Undertake a full evaluation of Smith's Cove U-shaped structure and other features for their true purpose. It's amazing. I'm going to stop here. It's amazing how they didn't do that, right? They found these things, the slipway. But if they if they did any follow-up on this stuff years later, we've never seen anything about it. It was like it took the better part of an episode of a of a season. And what conclusions did we draw? None. It offered there's <laughs> it just seems to me impossible to have offered nothing to the story other than just looking at them, which seems to be all that we get out of that. Anyway, 14, properly assess the excellent magnetic map of the island for an understanding of all the anomalies. 
15. Evaluate all the documents found in the British archives by Joy Steele that show the evidence for their activity in 1720. All are referenced in 23 pages in the book of background material for easy access. 16. Now that you have all of Nolan's maps, tell and show us what he found. They're very detailed and deserve to be published. Let me stop here again. That's a fascinating point and something I think we all thought we would have seen by now and really pertinent to this episode in particular, right? And you'll see why later. So why has this been not, not been brought up before? Why have we not, you know, we have this new partnership with Tom Nolan. We've thawed the relationship between the Nolans and the Blankenships, and now we have very little to show for that over the years since. It's Now, let me say this, and I don't know how to say this nicely without sounding like I'm accusing Fred Nolan of something, and, and I'm not sure I am, but I will say that over the years of reading about Oak Island and researching and having spent some time on this, I've grown to be a little skeptical of Fred. I've been grown to be skeptical of his claims and some of the things he says he found. Um, and again, I'm going to bring out this episode review is going to discuss this a little bit better and you'll kind of get an idea of what I mean. It's a long and sordid story with Fred. And, you know, perhaps the Laginas kind of feel the same way. I don't know. It's just a guess. Anyway. Back to Gordon. 17, compile the present, compile and present, sorry, a, th- a synthesis of all the holes that were recently drilled and compare them to the analysis of early holes and shafts by Harris and McPhee. Okay, let me stop again just to clarify. He is referring to Graham Harris and Les McPhee, who wrote a book called Oak Island and Its Lost Treasure, a book that should be on everyone's reading list. <laughs> anyway, he continues. 18, present all the findings that were mentioned only once and never again. Some of these are key to the history. 19, undertake an interpretation of the seismic data that shows many buried sinkholes and linear channels at depth and show the maps. 20, analyze the pine tar from some of the items you discovered to determine the source of the pine tar and the process used as well as the age of the wood. You have that material. 21, acknowledge and assess the natural gold and silver found in the area of Oak Island on the surface, in the bedrock, and from mines and placers all around the island so that any minute traces are perfectly natural and to be expected. Let me stop again, especially since we're talking about gold and silver in the water tests, right? In my mind, we simply cannot do one without the other. We can't take these tests uh, you know, and and start following them without finding out what the natural surrounding areas could could hold in this key, right? It could hold in this mystery. And really, this makes me think that they must have already done this because spending all this time and money following the source of these test results without first examining the possibility it could all just be naturally sourced from the surrounding area, I mean, that would be just plain idiotic on their part, really. But if they have done it, we haven't seen it. So, well, why not? Anyway, I said Gordon had 21. He actually is 22. 22, and most importantly, before this, all this activity ends, undertake an honest and truthful exposure of all that was found and not walk away leaving so many loose ends when the truth is known. Canadians and Nova Scotians deserve to know the true geology and history. All right, that's it. Gordon, thank you so much for all of that. It gives us a lot to think about. And I think, you know, maybe going back and listening to all that a second time for you guys who are really deep into this stuff, is probably a good idea. Um, 
it gives us all a lot to think about, especially moving forward here in this season and, and beyond, right? Some of the things um, that you mentioned, Gordon, I think likely won't happen. Uh, and I would say that based almost entirely on television considerations, right? <laughs> but I do agree with you on almost all of this. Do the research, leave no stone unturned. I would love if they finish without a solution that they come kind of come come out with what they found and what they know and what didn't make the show. We would all love to see that. I know that there are things that these guys have found or information that the show just doesn't put on for show reasons. It's not their fault. It's the fault of the editors and producers who are trying to produce an entertaining show rather than some sort of factual, you know, rather than a lecture on Oak Island. Now, with all that in mind, uh, before we go to a break, let me just add this. Um, I give voice to Gordon's stuff here and gave a huge segment of the show here on the podcast for two reasons. One, he's a friend. And he's always been supportive of the podcast. He's extremely helpful to me and to the listeners. He's very generous with his time and his knowledge. Um, he answers questions for people on social media all the time, right? But more importantly, because like I said, Gordon is not a skeptic. He believes there is a mystery on Oak Island to solve. He just doesn't think it has to do with treasure <laughs> or the Knights Templar. And I can only assume, because he holds that particular opinion on the theory, um, that neither he nor his late co-author, Joy Steele, who during her lifetime, by the way, knew as much about Oak Island as anyone alive. And I think because of the fact that their theory didn't have treasure involved or the Knights Templar, they've never been given a voice on the curse of Oak Island to talk about their theories, which are incredibly well-researched and certainly something these guys should be looking into. And I just don't agree with that decision on Prometheus's part. I just don't. As I say right at the top of every podcast, I'm looking for the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm not looking for a treasure. I don't care what the truth is. If it's the Ark of the Covenant, great, right? But if it's a secret military operation, I find that equally as cool. Rick and Marty Lagina often say the very same thing. And I think it's high time they showed their sincerity to that thought by giving some time to Gordon and Joyce Theory. Until that time comes, I'm going to give Gordon a voice here on this show. Anyway, Gordon, thank you so much for allowing us to have such a great conversation here. Let's take a break. We'll come back with a little review of this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. All right, before we get into this week's episode, let me just mention our Patreon page again. Folks doing this podcast takes time and money. So I kind of need your help with that. And therefore, I would humbly ask that you please consider becoming a patron of the Curse of, of Diggin' Oak Island. Sorry, if you, they don't need any patrons on the Curse of Oak Island. They got plenty of money. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then go to patreon.com slash Oak Island and sign up to become a patron. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. I love that chat. It's my favorite part about this whole Patreon thing. Again, go to patreon.com to sign up and support the podcast. Uh, it's only five bucks a month, and you can cancel it at any time. And also, if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Uh, just use the username at Dave McBride Music. I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a musician by trade, and that's sort of my virtual tip jar. Um, 
And let me send yet another Billy Gerhardt dump truck full of thanks to Anne for her incredibly generous donation this week. Anne, I can't thank you enough for that. All right, let's finally discuss Season 10, Episode 8 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Lot to be Desired. Going to ignore the pun. Let's start over at the swamp where last week we saw two guys from a company called Panther Geoscience doing what I believe they referred to as a conductivity scan of the area for potential metal and other sort of what he calls reflective anomalies using something called an EM-318. Jeremy Church is back in the war room this week to present to the team, uh, including, and by the way, in the war room is including Fred Nolan's son, Tom, talked about Fred quite a bit, and we're going to talk about him again here. Uh, Jeremy Church is presenting what he calls preliminary results, and he shows them this sort of color-coded map with areas in red that he shows the high conductivity, these like little targets, these little squares. And I, I, I guess that means he thinks from these this red that there is uh, possibly metal down there. Now, many of these red spots are located in a much larger orange area, which I assume means also an elevated level of conductivity or reflectivity, but um, not as high as the red. Uh, and they all seem to be in the southern end of the swamp. Now, Alex Lagina asks Church what this large orange area might mean, this area where most of these small dots are located. Could What could this possibly mean? Why is there such a big area in the swamp of what seems to be at least somewhat elevated conductivity. And Church just sort of brushes the question aside. He never answers it and instead points out another hit up towards the top of the triangle by the so-called Eye of the Swamp. I don't know why he doesn't answer it, but he doesn't, right? The team then discusses after this conversation, um, which is edited and chopped up, I'm sure he had a lot more to say, uh, if this is enough information for them to actually start applying for permits to drain and dig the swamp again. Although... I must admit, I'm a little confused. Didn't the big bad government uh, come and shut them down from digging the swamp? I don't know. I guess permits. I have no idea. Anyway, after a lot of nodding uh, and a lot of agreeing that we're gonna we're gonna you know look into this, Craig Tester kind of pulls them all back a bit and says that he really thinks that these results kind of need to be processed more before putting all this effort and all these man hours into going through the permitting process. And listen, he's right. Right. He, the, why jump on something which the guy who brings the info himself calls preliminary at best and also doesn't seem to have many answers for the questions these guys have other than he's showing some possible targets. I mean, that there's targets everywhere. Uh, as, as Gary Drayton has proved, there's metal all over the island. So, I mean, it's, you know, he's right. I, I got to agree with Craig on this. Now, before the scene ends, Tom Nolan interjects and says, that he would like to spend some time looking for what his father called some sort of wall system on the north side of the swamp. We go back to what we were talking about in uh, Gordon Fader's message, right, about all these things that Fred Nolan had and said to have found but didn't, but we haven't followed up on. Here's a big one right here, right? Later, Tom also refers to what he's talking about as a log structure, quote-unquote, or, or quote-unquote, a damming system. Now, Remember, Fred Nolan has done more work in the swamp than probably anyone, perhaps even more than the Laginas and all we've seen. And Fred believed that Hulk Island was once two separate islands and that the swamp is actually the man-made result of, you know, damming the water on both sides, thus creating a, uh, you know, one island 
uh, and the swamp at the mean in the meantime, and possibly using this whole man-made swamp for the purpose of hiding a ship in between the two islands. Now, there are a lot of reasons that I do not believe in this theory, uh, and I, I think it's really pretty far-fetched when you get right down to it, but be that as it may, this idea of damming at least the north side of the island uh, seems to be what Tom wants them to look for. So later we see Tom Nolan on the beach uh, just north of the swamp, and he's joined by Peter Fernetti and somebody named Stefan Grund, who I don't know that we've seen him before, and he's, I guess, a GPR expert doing a ground-penetrating radar scan of the area that uh, Tom had mentioned in the war room. They see some hits on the scanner that they think is worth looking at, and hopefully we'll see some more on this in the future episode, but that's all we get for today. What's weird to me about this whole thing is that, again, uh, we haven't so two things. Why haven't we seen this kind of stuff before? If there is actual evidence of damming for the for the swamp, wouldn't that help solve the mystery of whether or not the swamp is or isn't man-made? But also, Tom doesn't mention why his father actually believed the wall was there. Did Fred dig over here and find something and see something? Did he document it? Are there pictures? Does he have some sort of evidence to back up his father's claim? It's kind of a strange thing, at least in my mind, to leave out of all this. All right, let's head now over to the money pit where we see a continuation of last week's work. Remember, there was a large cavity down at 150 feet or so in borehole L15. They sent a camera down last week, and now they're sending down a sonar device to scan the void more thoroughly and get a better idea of its dimensions and those sorts of things. Um, honestly, the initial scan here doesn't seem at all that fascinating to me, but what do I know? The guys start talking about it being linear looking. Honestly, I don't really see that here. It doesn't seem very linear to me. Go back and look at the sonar from the tunnel that they were looking at earlier in the season. Now that looks linear. This just doesn't really to me, but again, I'm a podcaster and uh, you know, I'll get back to that in a second. We head to the war room for some more discussions on these sonar results. And Steve Guptill tells us that the cavity is huge, something like 27 feet by 12 feet. And Craig Tester tells us that it's located within the limestone bed, just above the bedrock. Dan Henske is asked about this and he tells the team that, um, in all of his years, they've never detected what he calls horizontal water in the limestone. And therefore, this must all be man-made. And what follows is a lot of nodding and talking about the chapel vault. And that kind of gives me two questions. One, isn't it possible that this is the evidence of horizontal water in limestone? <laughs> I mean, just because Dan has never seen it before doesn't mean it doesn't exist, especially since we're talking about a depth where a lot of previous searching hasn't ever really been done. And two, who would build a vault this big down this far? I mean, unless they were hiding a tractor trailer, <laughs> it doesn't make much sense to me to build such a giant vault, especially one that now is seemingly empty. Now, the thing is, as I was about to cast all of this aside as a natural feature and a lot of exaggeration, um, at the request of the patrons during the live discussion, I actually reached out and asked the aforementioned Gordon Fader, remember, a marine geologist, and here's what he had to say. They have provided limited data on the feature, so it's difficult to fully understand its characteristics. 
An expert opinion based on what was presented indicates it's either an old searcher tunnel, no wood though, or a natural cavity. The place is full of natural cavities, and if you look at all the old borehole reports, they have found many. If natural until, it is a new sinkhole forming. The seismic data from the past shows about 20 sinkholes buried that have not made the surface but will someday. Thank you again, Gordon. Again, here's what I mean. He's incredibly generous with his time and with his intelligence. So as you can see, anything is possible here, right? And there is a lot more to learn about what this could be before I just toss it aside. Unfortunately, the narration kind of suggests there might not even be enough time, or as he kind of hints here, money to do this project this year. Now, it's a huge job to say the least. Even getting a diver down there is not simple or safe for that matter, and certainly not cheap. I've seen some fans ask, um, could this brushing aside as not being able to do it this year be an actual clue into what they really think of what they're seeing? Uh, that they really don't think it's worth worth investigating. So instead, they claim there's no time or no money on the show, so they can sort of brush it aside, yet leave open the idea of a mystery to viewers. They've done this before. They're guilty of this. I don't know. I'll leave that for you to decide. All right, let's finish up the episode over at Lot 5. That's right, Lot 5, a place the team has never been before. And that's because Lot 5 was, if memory serves, the last and only lot left on Oak Island, not owned by someone named Lagina, Blankenship, or Nolan. It was actually owned by a man named Robert Young, who purchased the lot from Fred Nolan in 1996. And over the years since the Laginas have been on the island, he has refused the team access to his property. Uh, it goes both ways. The uh, Laginas also refused him access to the causeway in road, which is privately owned. So therefore, Mr. Young had to uh, row his way over to his property to uh, look around. Uh, again, it's a long and complicated story. I don't really go into it much right here. Um, but if you go to oakislandlot5.com, yes, there is an oakislandlot5.com, you can learn a lot more about Mr. Young, how he came to own his little piece of Oak Island, and what he found there over his years searching the property. He's got lots of pictures of items that I think will look very familiar to fans of the show. Now, Young passed away back in 2020, and the property was since sold to the Laginas. But for more on that... Here is what Lisa, one of our patrons, had to say during the Patreon live discussion. She says, when I visited in September and took a tour with Tony's company, he said the story was that when Young died, he put in his will that Lot 5 could not be sold to Blankenship or any company he was a part of. So Marty and Craig bought it personally. Man, I got to tell you, I love the listeners to this show. Really great stuff, Lisa. Thank you for that, for giving us a little clarity. Yeah, you're not getting that on the Curse of Oak Island for sure. Uh, and Tony has a uh, company, Salty Dog Tours, that take you on boat tours around the island. Actually kind of cool. Definitely on the bucket list for me. Anyway, so Marty and Craig now own it. And Gary Drayton is super excited about metal detecting on it. Well, I mean... Gary Drayton is super excited about everything, so I'm not sure that tells us much, but next we see Gary and Rick metal detecting on their new land, and Gary finds what looks like an old iron chisel, or perhaps maybe a spike. Now, I have to say, Gary tries real hard to make this seem like some potentially important or mysterious find, um, 
But all Gary's diatribe about how you would need a spike to bury a treasure did was make my wife give me the biggest eye roll I've seen from her in quite some time. As longtime listeners to this show know, my wife used to watch this show religiously with me. She gave up on it a couple of years back. Um, She never really watches it anymore. And the one time she actually sits down to watch for a while, first time all season, this is what I get. (sighs) Anyway, later Gary finds half an old coin, what he calls a cut coin. And what he means is that they actually used to cut these coins to spend like a portion of what they're worth. It's like kind of a primitive way of giving change, you know? Someone caught co- something costs five cents and you only have a dime. So cut the dime in half and there you go. <laughs> That's pretty much the principle here. Gary is crazy excited about it, calling it treasure and high-fiving Rick and on and on and on. But before we all get too excited, um, if you haven't already, since I mentioned it, looked at the aforementioned website, oakislandlot5.com, go ahead and take a look now. Hit the picture gallery, and you'll see that Mr. Young, since only just the 1990s, has found quite a collection of old copper coins over here. So I'm not sure that it is all that earth-shattering find. Anyway, but be that as it may. They take the coins down to the interpretive center to show it to Laird and Emma. Now, right off the bat, Laird agrees it's a cut coin, gives it to Emma to run it through this XRF machine to get what, you know, what I refer to as the chemical makeup of the artifact. It is what she calls arsenic copper, essentially very old copper that has a little bit of arsenic in it, which is why they know it's very old, because the use of arsenic in copper ended like centuries ago. So we're talking likely around the 16th century or so, and Laird points out that it's probably not English or Spanish in origin. Now, this is a weird way of saying this. I mean, this is there's a lot of potential origins, uh, but I assume what he's hinting at here, or what they're trying to hint at to us, is that it might be Portuguese, but they don't actually specifically do that. They don't say Portuguese. They just say not Spanish or English. So I don't want to put any words in their mouths here, right? The coin is terribly worn, and therefore not much can be gleaned from what we see. And in the end, I'm not sure we're going to learn much more about it. Uh, But, you know, as Mr. Fader said in our little segment from Gordon Fader's uh, 22 Things for 2023, maybe finding a way to get a look at all of those other coins Robert Young has on his website and analyzing them might help answer this question. You know, in the end, it's indeed a cool find. Um, even if it's similar to a lot of finds made on Lot 5 over the years by someone not involved with the Curse of Oak Island. But hopefully, you know, we can bridge this gap like we did with Nolan and get a look at some of these artifacts and maybe this coin and the others might actually have a story to tell. That's going to do it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much. Don't forget, you can help out the show by becoming a patron. Uh, if you think we're worth five bucks a month to you, go to patreon.com slash island and learn more. If you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you'd like to help out the show in another way, then go give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and you can leave a rating. Thanks to everyone who's done that. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, don't forget, you can do that. Island at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, 
I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read, just please make a note of that for me. Well, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.